Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. We start with the housing crunch in Canada, especially painful right here in BC, and especially for young people. Now, we've been talking a lot about this on the show this week. Our young people, how are they supposed to afford a place to live in this city? I'm not even talking about buying a place. I mean, even the rents are, are absolutely ridiculous, highest in the country. How are people supposed to afford this? Now, this is becoming a huge political issue in our country right now. You got Justin Trudeau squaring off against Pierre Polyev now, the conservative leader, on the housing crisis. Got Margareta Dovgal standing by to discuss. First, have a listen to, to Trudeau here. This is what he said a couple of weeks ago about housing. He, he regrets saying this. Listen to what he said. I'll be blunt as well. Housing isn't a primary federal responsibility. It's uh, not something that we have direct carriage of. <laughs> yeah. Don't look at me. It's not, it's not my responsibility. I tell you, man, he put his foot in it that day. And ever since he said that a couple of weeks back, there's been nothing. He's been talking, knock, talking basically nothing but housing practically. Had a three-day cabinet retreat where they talked about housing. Not a whole lot of came out of it, though. So we'll get into that as well. Okay, let's discuss now with my guest, Margareta Dovgal. Margareta is a housing advocate. Very pleased to welcome her back. Hey, Margareta, thanks for coming on today. Good morning, Mike. Great to be here. Okay, thanks for doing this. And when we take a look at this landscape, especially for young people, and, and, and I'm really interested in your perspective on this, because when you take a look at the rents in the city of Vancouver right now, some of these numbers that keep coming out, it's like they go up almost on a daily basis, it seems. So it's like 3000 bucks for a one-bedroom apartment. Are you kidding me? Like 4000 for a two-bedroom? What are you hearing from young people in this city about these rents? Well, I'm glad it's becoming a major political issue in the lead into a federal election whenever that happens. Uh, it's reaching a total fever pitch. Uh, it's long overdue. Uh, people, my generation, uh, new Canadians as well, have been struggling with this for a decade now. Uh, but it's gotten to a completely untenable point. I have friends leaving BC and Vancouver for places like Calgary, Edmonton. They're moving to Atlanta, Canada. Um, losing, you know, my close contacts and friends really sucks. Uh, we're losing that talent and that skill. Um, and then we have lots of people, uh, you know, who've just come to Canada, who've been promised this amazing place place to live uh, who are warning uh, immigrants from their countries on TikTok, don't come here. Uh, this mm. is really, uh, really a challenging place to be. Uh, if you make the decision to immigrate to Canada, sure, your income is going to be higher, but uh, you're going to be paying out the wazoo and, uh, <laughs> you know, just barely getting by. And it's hitting everyone across the income spectrum and renters in particular who, you know, don't have a place to permanently call their own in a lot of places are getting hit really, really hard right now. Yeah, that's really interesting to hear, especially when you hear about people who are deciding to make that make that kind of ultimate move right just pack up and go somewhere else because you know especially if you've grown up in british columbia or metro vancouver 
You love the place, right? Why would you want to leave? Like, why are when you talk to friends, friends of yours, young people who say they're leaving, why, where are they going and why are they leaving? Well, they're leaving because uh, you don't have the ability to save when every cent you have is going to rent or mortgage. Uh, you know, let's say your monthly income is $4,500 a month. Let's say you have a partner who's making around the same uh, and you're shelling out $2,500 a month of your hard-earned income uh, or more. You know, in some cases, yeah. uh, if you need a little bit more space or you have kids, uh, you know, 50% or more of your paycheck is, is headed there. Uh, you're under constant stress. You're sinking every spare cent you have. And I, I don't even think it's extreme to say it's like a work camp situation for Canadian under 40 who rent. Uh, or you, if you have a mortgage, uh, particularly if your uh, uh, mortgage uh, is up and uh, you're now being hit by a much harder rate than you were in the past, uh, it, it just makes it completely untenable. So folks are looking for places that you know have that high quality of life. There's job opportunities. Atlantic Canada has become a priority for a lot of people. Uh, a lot of Ontarians are uh, coming to Alberta. A lot of British Columbians are headed there as well. Um, and that's a real loss to us here in BC because we just, after yeah. years and years of talking about about this haven't actually fixed the problem. Okay, let's have a listen to the Prime Minister here talking this week about, about the housing challenge here. And, you know, he has really changed his tune since he put his foot in it there earlier where he, when he said housing is not a federal government responsibility. He's talking a very, very different message here now. So here he is. They had a three-day cabinet retreat, and housing was the primary topic. Here he is talking about the, the way forward here. Here's Trudeau. There's lots of different factors that go into this housing crisis, but it's something that has been brewing and developing over the past number of decades. And the way to solve it will be, yes, to look at all the different factors that contribute in different ways and make sure that all ideas are on the table. Okay, okay. so he says this has been brewing for decades here. I guess maybe trying to say that it's... It's not his fault because his opponents, especially Paulie, ever going to try and pin it right on him here. But he says, look, this has been going on for decades. The thing, the thing is, Margareta, for your thoughts, like he's talking a lot about housing recently, but he came out of that three day cabinet retreat and there was, there were no deliverables there that I heard about. There were no, no firm commitments or programs or new housing. What, what do you think about where the federal government's leading on this now? They have a responsibility to lead. Uh, they had a responsibility five years ago to be leading on this. And um, yeah, it's 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 a joint thing. Uh, you know, municipalities have a big part to play in things like rezoning and development permits. Uh, you know, in Vancouver, to get a new build, a development built, it's a five to nine year, five years is a very you know optimistic timeline. Uh, so, you know, you're planning a decade out. Um, but the, the real problem that we have is it's functionally illegal to build more. And that's been true, yeah, for a number of decades. Uh, municipalities have been really restrictive on this. Um, but the private sector wants to build. Uh, there's huge demand right now. And the main constraint is just getting those projects into the pipeline for approval and construction. Um, you know, you want to be in a place where getting enough labor and materials to to build a, a, a new purpose-built rental building, for example, is the constraint. You don't want to be in a position where different levels of government have uh, passed the buck, passed the potato along, said, hey, not my problem, your problem, not my problem, your problem. You actually yeah. want to be in a place where you're permitting that to happen. And that's the main factor, I think. There's a few others as well, but that's where the solution needs to come from, in my opinion. Okay, this is going to be a, a super major political issue here going forward, especially as you get closer to an election, as you mentioned. Let's listen to the other guy here. So this is Pierre Polyev, leader of the Federal Conservative Party, speaking this weekend. 
And you know what? Like, you take a look at the polls, the way this is working out. Polyev, I think, is kind of eating Trudeau's lunch on this housing file right now. He's just really scoring big points against him. Here's Polyev here on rising mortgage payments. Let's listen. The average mortgage payment has gone from 1400 the day that Trudeau promised he would make housing affordable, to 3500 That's two and a half times higher. This is the fastest increase in mortgage payment costs in the history of Canada. Okay, the thing I want to ask Poliev, and I'm hoping to get him on the show soon, is get into some precise details about how he's saying he's, he'd make this better. Now, one of the things he did say was putting pressure on municipalities to start approving more housing starts and, and just build more stuff, like you were talking about. How do we know, though, that that is going to be affordable housing that gets built? Like, I wonder, Margareta, like you, you talked about the private sector here. Let's get them building housing, but... How is that going to be affordable? Like, is there a role for government to bring in more like social housing or subsidized housing, do you think? We need a little bit of everything on this. Um, there's yeah. going to be people who can afford market rates, uh, even if they're a little bit below market. Um, and yeah. developers can build those. Uh, Vancouver ran a pilot, um, uh, moderate income uh, rental housing. So they said, hey, you can upzone, you can build more than six stories. Uh, in exchange, 20% of your units need to be uh, accessible to different incomes. And that's for the life of the building. Um, you know, And the, the economics of that do make sense uh, if you let developers build more. So that's one solution that's been pursued. That was a pilot project, and hopefully the city expands that massively. Uh, on the federal side, uh, we've heard this proposal from many different corners for many years now. Uh, Polly, I've recently mentioned it. It's tying investments in infrastructure and uh, rapid transit in densification. So using right. uh, the money that municipalities need to build for a growing population and making the demand really clear. If you want this money, you need to upscale. You need to densify as quickly as possible. Uh, right. But yeah, investments in the kinds of things that the market will never build totally make sense. Uh, recently, we heard about a $500 million uh, fund. It's uh, you know, I think there's details still coming uh, to help um, developers build uh, market uh, below market, more affordable housing. But that's really just a drop in a very, very large bucket. Uh, there will never be enough money uh, for taxpayers like you and I uh, to to build all the homes that are needed. It needs to be a principally market led solution. And if you do okay. that, the pressure on everyone actually declines so people can afford things, whether it's market, below market, subsidized, non-subsidized uh, and ensure that folks like, uh, you know, young uh, single parents, uh, seniors aren't competing with high-income professionals who are also feeling the squeeze and going into homes that would otherwise be affordable. Thank you for your thoughts on it today. I appreciate it a lot. Thanks so much, Mike. Have a good one. All right. We talked about the housing crunch there to start the show, especially in Vancouver and especially when it comes to young people who can't afford to forget about even buying a first home. It's difficult to find a place to rent with rents that have gone through the roof. Now, is this a problem for Justin Trudeau here? Now, remember, I think historically the liberals have done pretty well, typically among younger voters. But man, oh, man. If young voters start to get really turned off, especially when it comes to the cost of living in this difficult economy and for housing, do they start to maybe turn their back on Justin Trudeau? There is some evidence that that is happening. i got David Coletto standing by from Abacus Data. First, let's have a listen to Trudeau here. He knows he is vulnerable. Trudeau knows this is a problem for him. He came out of that caucus retreat this week with a, a message for millennials. Have a listen. 
to young Canadians, I want to say something. You've had two crucial years of adulthood dramatically interrupted by COVID, and then you were hit by global inflation and increased interest rates. Okay, that's Justin Trudeau. He feels your pain there for young people. How's it looking for him in the opinion polls? Let's find out right now. David Coletto is my guest, founder and CEO of Abacus Data. Very, very pleased to welcome him back to the show. David, thank you for coming on today. Great to be here, Mike. Thanks for having me. Good morning. You bet. I appreciate it a lot. I'm always really interested in your surveys and your analysis. So let's find out what you found out here when it comes to young voter intentions here. If Boy, if Trudeau and the Liberals, if they lose this millennial vote... I think that could be some trouble for him. What did you find out? So we, this was a survey we had done at the end of July to early August. We had, we'd done two surveys and merged them together. So we got a really large sample size and it allowed us to, with confidence, look at the difference across generations. And if you look at, as you said, at the two youngest generations, Gen Z or Z, which are those born between 1997 and 2005 eligible to vote and millennials, I'm a millennial, old millennial, 1980 to 1996. Um, the Liberals are trailing the Conservatives among most groups, but I think the, the biggest finding is that among Millennials, they're 11 points behind the Conservatives. And, and just to, as you said, keep in mind that, you know, research that we had done for the last decade has shown, um, you know, the Liberals really re have relied on particularly Millennials, it's one of the largest uh, voter groups in the electorate, uh, really relied on them to not just yeah. win, I think, their majority in 2015, but I think they saved their skin in the last two federal elections in which they pulled off those minorities. And so the fact that they are, are like the gap between millennials, between the conservatives and liberals is wider than it is among baby boomers, right? And that is like a reversal of, of what we had seen previously. And, and it's a no surprise that the prime minister is, is, is speaking directly to them because he needs them and the liberals, yeah. I think, can't win without them. Yeah, boy, that's some astonishing numbers there. I'm just looking at your your findings here right now. And like you said, among boomer voters, so these are older voters, okay, who would, you know, you'd think that they would be trending more conservative. Yeah, the conservatives leading there by five points over the liberals among boomers. Millennials, 11-point lead for Polyev here among millennial voters? Wow, that is a big gap. Like, how does that stack up historically? What What are the trend lines here? Like, that, that gap is widening, I imagine. Oh, it's it much, you know, like the Liberals won millennials in the last federal yeah, election, right? right? Uh, yeah. They lost boomers. So, um, and, and a big part of the story is, is not just that, you know, it's not, conservatives are doing better among this that cohort, but it's also because the NDP is taking such a big chunk. The NDP is taking a quarter of the vote, whereas they're only getting about 14% among boomers. So, you know, that progressive center left is splitting um, in part because a lot of them, I think, are just disillusioned with the liberals. They're feeling the uh, anxiety of, as you mentioned, you know, high rent, high interest rates, inflation. And I think at this stage, all voters across the country are getting fatigued with the liberals and, and Mr. Trudeau. But but I think, you know, from day one, the prime minister uh, signaled to millennials that he was going to be in their corner, right? He appointed himself yeah. minister of youth. I don't know if you remember, it was the first time there was a federal minister of youth. Uh, soon after he was elected in 2015, he appointed himself into that role because he wanted to signal how important that segment was. Well, you know, a few years later, he he no longer was the minister. And it does kind of, I think, feel to them that, um, you know, what have you done for me lately? And And I think that's a, yeah. And that's why I think you're seeing this 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 reversal, not really a reversal, but but certainly a 
um, a, a focus from the Prime Minister this week towards young Canadians. Yeah, for sure. Speaking of David Coletto from Abacus Data, is Justin Trudeau losing the youth vote here, especially millennial voters? And are they shifting to Pierre Polyev and the Conservatives here? I think Polyev has done a good job in reaching out to these voters. He, he's very skilled on, on social media. And some of the talking points that he's employed lately, especially when it comes to housing, I think are right in the wheelhouse for a lot of these young voters and what they're top of mind for them, David. Let me play a clip here for you from Polyev, uh, show you what I mean here. I think Polyev here reaching these young people here. Let's listen. For young people and the working class, the housing market after eight years of Justin Trudeau is a prison. It's a prison of walls for 350 square foot apartments that cost $2,000 a month or parents' basements where young adults of 35 years old live, never having a chance to start a family with their biological clocks running out. Yeah, yeah. I, I think he's, he's really putting his finger on something there and it may, it may be working for him. David, your thoughts? Yeah, I think he's been um, laser focused on, you know, two of the most important issues to, to, to this cohort, to millennials, um, housing, as you just heard, and the cost of living. And yeah. I think he still is, you know, it's not it's not locked in that he's going to be able to get their vote. He's going to have to offer some pretty um, compelling policies. But at, but at some point, people will look at, you know, the incumbents and say, you've had eight years. You've had eight years um, in which you've had many a budget in which you've said housing is a priority. And it, it, the problem has gotten worse, not better. And we've seen from other polling this week, from other some of my um, colleagues that, you know, uh, plurality the most more canadians blame the federal government for the housing crisis than than any other level of government and so i think this is all uh, creating an opportunity for the conservatives they see this um you know they don't have to win millennials by a huge margin but if they're doing better among that group and they hold on to their uh core core voter group that voted for them the last two elections that's that's a victory And, and you can see that in the conservative strategy for sure do millennial voters turn out on election day in big numbers though like don't they don't younger people typically tune out more from politics and actually don't even bother voting i mean yeah younger canadians generally are less likely to vote um yeah. i mean one thing to keep in mind about millennials though i mean he's he was conflating them with young people i'm a millennial i'm 42 mike like millennials yeah. aren't kids anymore right most of them are in their 30s now um and and we know that in 2015, one of the reasons Trudeau and the Liberals did so well is we had a huge spike in youth voter turnout. It's come down a little over the last two elections, but it's still higher than it used to be. And so if this because this segment of the population is so big, like the size of the, the, their, their baby boom parents generation, they can have a huge influence on the outcome. And so I think Polyev is, is and the conservatives are saying, look, in the past we kind of had to write off this generation. We, we couldn't connect with them. They, they loved Trudeau and it was, you know, his, his brand was so, so connected to, to the way they saw the world. That's not the case anymore. And there's a real opportunity. I mean, I don't think the conservatives are putting all their eggs in the millennial basket, so to speak, but um, it's clear that they see an opportunity here now. And um, even if they vote at, at lesser numbers than older voters, it's still a, it's still a huge uh, opportunity.
Do you think, like, I've heard people, people have written Trudeau off before, right? And, you know, and he's, he's had a long list of scandals here from We Charity to, I mean, you name it. That We could talk the whole show about some of the problems he's had, blackface scandal. And it's it almost like, you know, it, he's almost got a little Teflon going on. He's able to shake off these scandals and, and just keep on winning. Is there any indication, though, that this Trudeau brand is finally showing some tarnish here? He's been around a long time. Well, I think, you know, it's hard to say if he's over and done. I think, I think as, you, as you said, he's yeah. a talented politician. People know him well. They may be getting sick of him, but elections are about choices. And I think as we've seen in the last two federal elections, uh, the Conservatives went into those in a very competitive position, should have maybe won both of them, and they ultimately lost because they just couldn't close the deal. And I th- still think there's a there's some risk there that Polyev, we released some new polling last week with the Toronto Star that showed, you know, almost half the country really doesn't know who he is. Um, but new right. polling we're, we're just releasing today shows those ads that he's running. Um, are, are are perhaps working, that, that his positives are going up, and that's Mr. Polyev. But so for, for Trudeau, it's never been as bad as it is today. Now, can yeah. they still pull it out, perhaps? But I, I look at numbers, for example, in British Columbia, where you are, right? This is a, an area where the Liberals have, have, have made gains in 2015, held on to a number of those seats in the lower mainland. The Liberals are now in third in British Columbia, uh, just at around 20%. Um, that's that's a, you know, that, that means they could lose five, six seats uh, that they hold there, and how do you then cobble together a win if you're losing seats there and likely in Ontario? It's just looking really, really difficult right now. Yeah, and uh, David, last question for you. There appears to be pressure on Trudeau potentially internally here as well, according to some reports. Like you know, some people maybe want him to say, "Time to like his dad did, take that walk in the snow and maybe decide to step aside and not run again." What did you find out? I know you asked Canadians if they think Trudeau should run again or maybe it's time for him to retire. What did you find out there? Yeah, well, only one in four Canadians want him to run again overall. Um, oh. That's not a horrible number, but it's not great right? when you need 30, 33, 34. But I think the most telling number is the fact um, that one in four of those who voted liberal in 2021 don't want him to run again. Um, and so you, I think, and you're also starting to hear for the first time in this government's eight year life, um, off the record and anonymously, but saying not off the record, but anonymously MPs are saying maybe it's time, right. Or, or maybe, you know, they're not united as they once were. So I, I do think, um, there may be some increased pressure on the prime minister. I think at the end of the day, I'll just say this, Mike, like who's the alternative. I think liberals are struggling with, okay, if not Justin Trudeau, who would replace him? And that's not very clear, I think, at this point. Right. For sure. David, thanks a lot for coming on today. Great analysis. Appreciate it. Thanks, Mike. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? 
It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. All right, let's talk about no-fault auto insurance in British Columbia now. This has been the law of the land for more than two years now. And remember how the government rolled this out. They said, look, this is going to save a lot of money. And I don't think you can deny that most people have seen their insurance premiums go down compared to what they were pre no fault. Now, how does this work? How do they save that money? Well, the government said, look, we're going to take the personal injury lawyers, take them out of the equation now. Take them out of the mix. So if you are injured in a collision in the large majority, the vast majority of cases now, you cannot hire a lawyer and sue for damages for pain and suffering. That has all gone away now. Instead, if you are injured, you receive what the government has called its enhanced care benefits, kind of an automatic schedule of benefits. I got Eric McGracken standing by to talk about it. We talked about this on the show yesterday. You heard from the guy who was on his motorcycle. Uh, a, a truck driver made an illegal left, um, an illegal U-turn in front of him. He destroyed his leg. His leg got shattered in an accident. He's not happy with no fault. Let's go back to when... The Premier rolled this out. So here's David Eby announcing no-fault auto insurance. These changes will introduce dramatically improved care and recovery benefits should someone become injured in an automobile crash, providing them with up to at least $7.5 million in care and recovery benefits for as long as they need it. This will eliminate the need for British Columbians to hire a lawyer to get the care they require to get back to living their lives as they did before their crash. Okay, $7.5 million in benefits. Nobody can complain about that. And he also said they're very significantly for as long as you need it. Now, I've talked to some people who have been injured in collisions who say they did not get the benefits as long as they need the benefits. Okay, have a listen to Tim Schober here. I really feel for this guy. This guy is a cyclist, hit by a motor vehicle, really, really seriously injured, and he's not happy with no fault either. Have a listen. I went from being a very healthy, active person uh, into a, being a quadriplegic. Does not provide adequate amount of money for my uh, caregivers' pay, so. The amount of care that I get has been reduced from what it should be to match what ICBC's cap is. All right, let's discuss now with my guest, Eric McGracken. Eric is a personal injury civil litigation lawyer, the McIsaac Group. I'm very pleased to welcome him back. Eric, thank you for coming on today. Hey, Mike, thanks for having me on. Yeah, you bet. I appreciate it. So let's talk about no-fault auto insurance here and how it's working out so far. And I know you talk to people who are frustrated with the system. What are the sort of the, the typical complaints and the most common complaints that you hear? I talk to people like Tim every single day. Every day, my office fields calls from people involved in car crashes, so pedestrians that are run over, cyclists, mothers, children. Uh, people who lost a loved one, right? My my mom died or my dad died. They were run over. Eric, yeah. can you help me? That's the conversation. And I break the news to every one of these people the same way, which is no, I can't because the government gave legal immunity to the bad drivers. So if you run a red light, if you're texting and driving, even if you're drinking and driving, and you run somebody over and you maim them or you kill them, 
those people have legal immunity from their actions. They can't be sued. You can't take them to court. The victims' rights were stripped away so those bad drivers could avoid responsibility. And the only exception to this, Mike, because this Mm. sounds dramatic what I'm saying, but it's true. The only exception to this is if that bad driver is criminally convicted for their actions. And that happens maybe, and I'm being generous, maybe one in 100 crashes. It's probably one in 10,000. But the police don't have to show up to crash scenes anymore. That's another law that this government passed. Uh, And the police, if they do show up and they charge people, it's almost always a provincial offense. The criminal code is rarely involved. And if the criminal code is involved, there's almost always a plea bargain to something under a provincial offense. So you almost have nobody being criminally convicted. And unless they are, they have complete civil immunity from lawsuits. And so So, I break this news to people every day. And it's, you know, I almost feel like the bad guy telling people this is how it works. But it is how it works. And it's it's awful, awful news. And there's a hundred people out there like Tim, uh, badly injured and they're not getting adequate care david eby could talk about 7.5 million you know it's a big number it sounds impressive but i would ask if you've ever talked to a single person mike that's been catastrophically injured who says no fault is good no i i have to admit i have not and tim schrober the, the the fellow's voice that we just heard there he was a cyclist he was hit and he ended up as a quadriplegic, as you heard him describe there. Absolutely tragic case. And you heard him describe there, he feels that the compensation he has received is not adequate, even for his caregivers. So that's the thing that went through my mind when I heard that case. Because can you imagine being so catastrophically injured as a quadriplegic after being hit on your bike, and you, you don't get the care that you need? Like, when EB talked about $7.5 million being available... You'd think this is a guy who would be qualify for this kind of dough if he's a quadriplegic. Why would he not get like a massive amount of money? What are your thoughts? Well, well, that's exactly it. So, so in theory, you've got this massive amount of money, but in practice, yeah. you're dealing with an adjuster who's giving you a schedule of benefits, and they're all artificially capped, right? So, hey, I need physiotherapy. Well, and I don't have the number in front of me, Mike, but let's call it $100. They say, well, we'll pay $100 per visit for physiotherapy. And you say, well, my physiotherapist charges $140. Well, too bad, too bad. Pay that extra $40 yourself or go find somebody who's willing to accept the ICBC rates. And you say, well, I I was a pedestrian. I was run over. This is not my fault. Why do I have to bear this shortcoming? Well, because that's what no-fault insurance is. The victim holds the bag so the driver could get off scot-free. And the way, the way this was sold to the public, you actually talked about it, lawyers are bad. Yeah. So we're going to give you this wonderful new system with no lawyers. Isn't that great? Right. Now, that's popular. We're going to save you money. Well, no-fault insurance doesn't do a single thing for lawyers. It It doesn't take away lawyers' rights. That's a deception on the public. It takes away your rights as a British Columbian or anybody visiting British Columbia if you're run over by a bad driver. Well, doesn't it, though, though, Eric, take away the vast amount of your your work and your clients compared to pre-no-fault? That's what it took away, didn't it? No, it takes away your right as the victim to sue the driver. Now, 
as the victim, you could hire a lawyer to help you sue the driver, and lawyers can't take those cases anymore because your rights are gone. But that's what's fundamentally gone. The other part of the deception is this was really, you know, clever politics. ICBC speculated how much crash victims were paying lawyers to fight ICBC and pretended that was an expense of ICBCs. Like ICBC saying, hey, do you know why insurance exists? It exists because if you're a bad driver and you cause serious harm, you could be sued. And if you make a mistake on the road, it shouldn't ruin your life. That's what insurance is there for. It says, okay, if I screw up and I maim somebody, I ruin their life, they could sue me and I have to pay for those consequences, but I could buy insurance. And now it becomes the insurance company's uh, burden to pay that, right? That's what the whole system is about. But now they said you have to buy insurance, but the victim can't sue. It's almost a preposterous thing that British Columbians have to pay for, because if you're the victim of a crash, you now get the schedule of benefits. And again, like, like if you're in a fender bender and you have some modest injury, it's probably a fine system. But everybody who is catastrophically injured, the person yeah. in the wheelchair, the paraplegic, the quadriplegic, the person with a shattered pelvis, the person with a brain injury, talk to any one of them and tell me if you've heard a good thing about the system they have. Here's the other side of the coin real quickly, Eric, because we've had this now for two years. I have not really heard much of a public uprising or uproar against no-fault insurance. I have heard from people who who did notice that their insurance premiums went down and their their auto insurance appears to be cheaper than what it was before no-fault, and that seems to satisfy most people. I think most people, wouldn't you agree that most people are really worried about, okay, uh, I'm getting a break on my auto insurance? Great. They don't stop and worry about what if I end up as a quadriplegic today in an accident. That's not what they're thinking about typically, right? So you're 100% right. Most people have to buy auto insurance. And of course, you want to pay less, not more. And so on the front end, you're happy. But why do you need auto insurance? Because catastrophic things can happen on the roads. They probably will not happen to you. But if they do happen to you, you want to make sure you're going to be fairly treated. But that's what's been taken away. Make people happy on the front end because that's where the masses are. Rip off the people on the back end that need it because they're in the minority. That is the system. And and again, Mike, if I sound sort of cynical about this, I have this call every day with at least one British Columbian when they're the victim of it. And I, I have to break it to them just as straight as I'm breaking it to your listeners because that's the truth. When people call me for a remedy, I say, it's terrible. You're out of luck. The only remedy is to share your story with somebody like Mike Smith to get this message out there that this is the reality in British Columbia right now and hope the government, any government, is willing to change it because okay. a lawyer won't be able to help you. Talking no-fault auto insurance with Eric McGrath. we got a ton of phone calls here. Jonathan in Vancouver. Hi, Jonathan. Go ahead. Well, hi, Mike. Good morning. Um, I just want to share my uh, stories and experience with ICBC. So, um, uh, yeah, so uh, I, got, I bought a car, brand new, 20 years. 23 years old, in good and mint condition. And then um, the driver, uh, my car was just uh, parked in a public space. And the driver um, left his contact information, and then he reported what had happened at ICBC. And then I, I brought my car to the body shop for repair cost estimate. So that after it got submitted, the information, ICBC, 
came back to me and says, um, my car uh, will be right off because the value of my car is, uh, uh, the cost of repair is more than the value of my car. And yeah. I just want to understand um, that what's the, uh, what's, the, what's, the pro- and, what's the problem? You wanted the car repaired? Yes, please. Yeah, because um, the car itself um, some, had a sentimental value, and the car itself, for 23 years old, is under 200,000 kilometers. The, 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 there was no internal damage. This is the main okay. thing here. Okay, um, er- okay, yeah. thank, okay, thank you for the call. Eric, I've heard these stories before. You know, ICBC says your car is a write-off. Sorry, they're not going to repair it. What do you think of that? Yeah, you're basically stuck with that decision. They've got a threshold where if the damages exceed a percentage of its value, they just write it off. But but in terms of no fault, Mike, I'll just yeah. tell this quick story. We're not talking injuries, but if your vehicle smashed up and is repaired, say you buy a brand new car for sixty grand and it gets smashed up the next day, not your fault, and the repairs are thirty grand, you got a bit of a junker now, right? Mm-hmm. You used to be able to claim the difference in market value. It was called accelerated depreciation, but they took that right away so you can't even hmm. sue for your smashed up vehicle anymore so all sorts oh. of rights were, were taken away okay interesting alex in new west hi alex go ahead yeah poor last call i, I they spent twenty uh, twenty thousand to repair my truck when i hit a boost the value of the truck was twenty four thousand. anyways 11 years ago i got flat by my by a car on my way to work smack brain brain injury fractured back uh, i tried really hard to Tough about work. I couldn't. I got screwed by ICBC and my lawyer. Went to mediation, whatever it's called. And I said to my lawyer, do I go to court? He just broke his arms. He goes, I don't know. And so now I'm living on disability. Um, I'm paying over $300 a month on physio and other stuff. And I, I don't have that money. And actually, I ran out of allotment for the year of my personal savings. And okay. So I'm screwed. And Alex. now I have... I live, I have not lived. I have Oxy. And this is how this drug problem starts. Yeah. Alex, thank you. Thank you for your call. I'm sorry for your troubles, man. I, I truly am. And, you know, I have heard from people who uh, have suffered like a brain injury, like Alex has, uh, Eric, in situations like that. And if he's not happy with the, the settlement that he receives from ICBC, can you appeal it? Isn't there like a civil resolution tribunal process or something or somewhere you can go to appeal or a fairness commissioner? Yeah, well, fairness commissioners, uh, boy, you know, that's it's basically a phone call or an email. They, they don't have any power to do much of anything. If ICBC is ripping you off right now, if you're not getting what you're entitled to, they created this online court called the Civil Resolution Tribunal. So, right. so hey, I need more physiotherapy, but the adjuster says no. You could duke that out at the Civil Resolution Tribunal, but that's 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 how you adjudicate the current system of rights and what we talked about of course for the last 20 minutes is how all the old rights were stripped away so the civil resolution tribunal can't treat you the way you were treated under the old system they could just give you the schedule of benefits that exist right now okay we have more calls coming in and i'd love to keep talking about this maybe we can have you back eric thank you for coming on today i appreciate it a lot yeah no mike anytime it's a pleasure Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. 
Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. All right, let's talk about this week's successful moon landing by India. Wow, India becomes the fourth country to reach the moon. They landed a spacecraft at the lunar south pole. They become the first country to successfully land at that region of the moon. There is a rover with that lunar lander. It landed successfully this week. I've got Dr. Ravi Shankar standing by to discuss. But first, let's have a listen to this report from Sky News. This isn't just a first for India, it's a first in lunar exploration. No one's successfully landed near the moon's south pole before. And it's a place of real interest for space science and also space exploration. It's one of the coldest places in the solar system where water and other important chemicals are frozen in deep, shaded craters. Okay, let's discuss now with my guest, Dr. Bhairavi Shankar, space scientist and founder of Indus Space Incorporated. Dr. Shankar, thank you for coming on today. Thank you for having me. Okay, this is very exciting here. So let's talk about how, how unique this, uh, this achievement is. Tell me about this region of the moon, because this is kind of a, a sort of a, is it correct to say it's an uncharted part of the moon? Yes, definitely. So it is the south pole of the moon is, you know, like any body, there's a north pole, there's a south pole, so the moon has it. But uh, it, it what the lunar south pole is, it is uh, a place where there are many areas within that region that would never see sunlight. And so they're within craters. And so these are known as permanently shadowed areas. Uh, and the reason that it's of interest is the possibility of water ice being present and preserved in these areas is pretty high. And we now know from previous missions, including Chandrayaan-1, uh, that there is water. And that would be helpful on many fronts. Firstly, to help understand how did water get to the moon, uh, if not uh, locally present. But also, if we we're planning to send humans uh, in the coming years, it would be easier for them to extract water from there rather than having to take it all the way from Earth and, and so on and so forth. So it's a very exciting area to invest in. And it's certainly exciting that this has now been successful. Yeah, and how significant is this, this successful mission here to land in this part of the moon by, by India? They become the fourth country to successfully, successfully do that. And I know there was a bit of a, wasn't there a bit of a space race going on? I think Russia, Russia had a, a lander that was due to land around the same, t uh, earlier in the same, uh, area, right? But it, it crashed, I believe. Yeah, so I mean, it's it, it, some call it space race, but if anything, it's just expanding and extending all the global participation. But you're right. Uh, Russia did attempt this earlier in the week, but unfortunately, they didn't have a soft landing. So the idea with soft landing is that it gently, you know, um, lowers itself. It's coming at very fast speeds as it's approaching the moon. But as it lowers closer to the surface, you you would like for it to slow down and not just hit very hard. And that's where a soft landing ideally means that it all 
um, the the whole um, unit will be able to land safely and upright so that the rest of the instruments can turn on. So in the case of Russia, that didn't happen. It crash landed. But with the uh. case of India, they were able to successfully lower themselves and, and land safely into a very flat area uh, of the polar region. Okay, so the lander has successfully landed on the surface of the moon at the South Pole, and there's a rover inside there too, right? What will be the, what will this rover be doing? So yeah, the the rover is basically think of it as a vehicle. It's about 25, 26 kilo, uh, kilograms in weight. It has six wheels, so you can think of if you're ever in a new area and you want to explore. That's what this rover would do. And so it has on it, within it, um, some instruments that will really help um, with this process. So this entire mission with Chandrayaan-3 is really a test because, as mentioned, it's the first time any uh, anything has landed on the South Pole. Um, and they just want to be able to understand what the surface conditions are for in preparation for future missions. So they have instruments that will help determine the compositions of the lunar soil. They have uh, extra uh, instruments, I guess, to really help break down what the exact mineral compositions are, what elements are present. Again, with the idea that it'll help um, to anticipate for future missions if they involve humans. But it also has the ability to just know what is the terrain looking like how rocky yeah. is it it landed in a, in a flat area but that's not necessarily all of the polar region so all of these instruments are basically to help test what is anticipated when you get to the south pole and really what will be useful to understand that part of the moon yeah, and as you mentioned there, the, the the potential for water deposits there in that part of the moon. And and speaking of future missions, of course, NASA has the Artemis program uh, going with the plan to return uh, a human human mission to the moon. Is will India be be part of that? Will they, will they share their data that they collect from this mission with with other countries here as as they team up on this moon these moon missions? Definitely. And I think if so, on, on one front, uh, India has recently signed to be part of the Artemis. There is the Artemis mission, but really, um, we've also reached a point where there are about 28 or 29 different countries across the globe who have all signed and, and committed to being able to safely explore moon and and the rest of our solar system so it's an exciting time that yes it's not just a very few countries leading this it's actually more of a global initiative and so uh yeah with with any mission it's always collaborative so even now um space agency is assisting chandrayaan uh and the team and so uh that will also be exchanged moving forward so i i believe India has sights on sending astronauts that may happen through this. Uh, and, and so, yeah, moving forward, it's it's just more participation. And I should put a uh, mention that Canada is also part of Artemis, uh, uh, the records, the sure. mission. And so it's really an exciting time for everyone. What was the reaction in India to the successful moon landing this week? I mean, are most people in the public supportive of this effort? I was reading about the budget here, $75 million. Which actually, it sounds like a fairly cost-effective <laughs> cost program. I know NASA can spend a lot more money on some of these missions. <laughs> what do people in India think about spending $75 bucks to land, send a lander to the moon? Is this, a po is this popular in India? 
Oh, I think that's an understatement. I, I believe when the live stream was happening, there were 8 million viewers, many of them. Uh, I mean, it was early morning for us, but everyone in the country is super ecstatic. I mean, it's it's also credit to ISRO, who has been a space uh, participant for many decades, but this is really helping put them on a much more international uh, limelight and and indicate that yeah anyone is is able to um, meet these uh, achievements. So the country and I know I've been getting a lot of messages as well. We're all very excited to to see this. Okay, it's very interesting to speak to you about it today. Uh, we're going to continue to follow it going forward. Thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.